I'm Marco Bourne, Senior Vice President at ICF for Disaster Management and Strategic Initiatives, and welcome to another podcast in ICF Insights with regards to COVID-19 and the response and the recovery efforts that are underway across the nation. This series of podcasts is designed to help our clients, state and local governments, private sector, and even the public understand the federal programs that are in play, uh, the activities that state, local, and private sector uh, clients can actually undertake, and examine some of the issues surrounding this most unique challenge in the history of our nation. Today, we're going to be discussing the housing and urban development, community development block grant funding that has been made available under the CARES Act uh, for COVID response. And we're going to be discussing the Office of Management and Budget's recent rulings and memos regarding the use of grant dollars uh, from other grant programs, as well as uh, the existing disaster grant programs, and how that is changing uh, as a result of COVID-19 and the efforts that those funding uh, streams can be used for. We have three experts today uh, from ICF who have been part and parcel of both the housing and urban development CBDG programs for decades, as well as our contracts lead and expert with regards to the OMB guidance that was recently put out uh, regarding existing dollars and existing funding. Uh, first off, I'd like to introduce uh, Kelly Price. Kelly is Vice President of ICF's Housing and Community Development Program uh, based in Charleston, South Carolina, with over 29 years of experience in planning and affordable housing, uh, disaster recovery programs. Uh, and Kelly worked at local government levels, designing, administrating community development programs, affordable housing programs, and has been delivering for many years technical assistance for various Department of Housing and Urban Development offices, their grantees, and the Office of Block Grant Assistance. She works directly with state and local government clients on design and implementation of community development programs. We also have with us today, Deb Seifert. Deb has 20 years of specialized experience in managing HUD programs and HUD funding programs, uh, especially the Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery Programs. Started with ICF in 2006 as a pro senior manager uh, and has been the program manager for over $4 billion in CBDG uh, disaster funds to include Texas, uh, Louisiana, North Dakota, New York City, and Colorado. Subject matter expert in CBDG disaster funding uh, and is the senior management disaster management consultant for ICF's disaster management practice. Finally, we have Carolyn Gardner. Carolyn Gardner is our Vice President for Contracts and Pricing at ICF uh, with over 25 years in contracts management experience, uh, leads the ICF team for contracts and pricing uh, to support both the Disaster Management Division as well as our public sector operating groups. Uh, her experience spans both the public and private sector in, in identifying and managing risks for a wide range of contracting services uh, involving various capabilities like engineering, training, design, consulting, and environmental remediation. She has extensive experience with the federal acquisition regulations and cost accounting standards and compliance for delivering U.S. programs worldwide. She's also a member of the National Contracts Management Association and the International Association of Contract 
and commercial management. And I'd like to welcome all three of you today to the podcast. Obviously, today we're going to be talking about Community Development Block Grants, otherwise known as CBDG. CBDG, of course, has been around for decades, serving and helping our communities in their community development uh, and in their housing missions. Uh, Also, in the last several decades, it's been used for disaster relief, and there are specific programs for CBDG DR, as it's well known. And upcoming, there will be Uh, CBDG mitigation dollars that are being made available to the states as well. But COVID-19 and the CARES Act has raised uh, another level of support and another sense of activities surrounding the use of CBDG dollars that have been specifically uh, earmarked by Congress for COVID-19 response, which is, I believe, a first for this type of an event, much like other uh, federal programs that have been used for natural hazard disasters, such as floods, tornadoes, and hurricanes, are being adapted and used in a slightly different way for this coronavirus activity. Uh, toward that end, uh, we have um, a lot of different issues with regards to what can these funding resources be used, what are they, and how are they available for COVID-19 response. Kelly, what are these resources and how are they going to be used based on the CARES Act? Sure. Thanks, Marco. Um, uh, thankfully, the recently enacted CARES Act actually provides uh, more than $12 billion in total to, to HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, for a wide range of programs, um, everything from homelessness um, prevention to public housing Um, But it also included uh, in that $12 billion, $5 billion for specifically the program that you've mentioned, um, CDBG, which is an important cornerstone program for communities across the country already. Um, So $5 billion for CDBG uh, for COVID response, and HUD has now uh, named this program CDBG-CV. So now we have a name for the program. Oh, another acronym to add to the list. Uh, right. How much funding is available for CBDG CV as opposed to the rest of the CARES Act funding? Right. So again, the total allocated was five billion for CDBG CV, but it was um, uh, uh, allocated in three different groupings. Um, Two billion of the five billion is um, already essentially available. Uh, Congress specified that that funding be appropriated using the um, federal fiscal year 2020 CDBG formula methodology. So um, how the money was determined last, uh, this past round for CDBG funding for states and entitlement communities was to be used to allocate that first $2 billion tranche of funding. So those uh, allocations have actually been announced. They're posted on HUD's website. And as I understand it, uh, grant agreements or modifications to grant agreements are already in process. Um, So that's essentially immediately available. And we'll talk more in a minute about um, being able to pay for costs already incurred. The other $3 billion of the $5 billion um, is a little more complicated. Uh, Congress specified that that funding um, have uh, formulas. $2 billion will have a specific formula related to certain factors, and another $1 billion of the $3 billion will have another formula based on factors, um, both of which are tied specifically to 
the coronavirus response and threat uh, going forward. So um, HUD has to take some time to analyze those data factors, determine what methodology will be used, and that would be published in a federal register notice that is said to be in process right now. Obviously, with any federal grant program uh, in under normal circumstances, there is a tremendous amount of regulatory uh, activities that have to take place on how the money is used and, and how it's managed. Uh, and certainly, um, caution always, no matter what the, the federal grant funding source is, all of our clients to read the fine print. Uh, in this case, there have been some regulatory waivers and flexibilities that have been added because of the uniqueness of COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Um, and, and as you said, much necessary. Um, Congress actually anticipated a number of these and included them specifically in the CARES Act language. Um, and then HUD is um, authorized uh, also in the CARES Act to implement other necessary and appropriate waivers and administrative flexibility. So I think we'll see this kind of come out on a rolling basis. The items that were in the CARES Act specifically are the removal of the traditional 15% cap on expenditures for public services. Normally, CBG has a 15% cap uh, per grant year on the amount of money that can be used for service-related activities. Uh, so very limited. Removing that cap completely, as you can see, uh, really opens up uh, a lot of options. They also are allowing for shortening of public comment periods for grantees to amend their existing action plans. An action plan is essentially an annual plan that goes to HUD to outline and the public to outline exactly how funds will be used. And um, they're shortening the normal comment period on that to five days so grantees can move quickly. And given the social distancing that's happening, they've also allowed for uh, virtual public hearings. And there's some guidance already published on those virtual public hearings. Those flexibilities that I just mentioned, the public service cap waiver, the uh, shortened comment period, and the virtual public hearings um, also apply retroactively to grantees' uh, federal fiscal year 2019 and 2020 regular CDBG grants. So not only to the new $2 billion and coming $3 billion in CDBG CV, but also to uh, the two prior years of CDBG funding if they should need that. Um, HUD is also continuing to put out additional guidance on other flexibilities that they're able to do. Uh, one example of that that is a, a common area for grantees to be concerned about is the environmental review requirements. And there are a few administrative flexibilities that the office that handles that at HUD has posted also on both HUD.gov and the HUD Exchange to provide them a little bit of relief in that regard. And again, the most important thing I would say to folks is to make sure they're looking out for the pending federal register notice. Um, that will be the vehicle by which not only the methodology for these formula allocations for the other $3 billion will be included, but also additional waivers and flexibilities will be published vis-a-vis -vis that federal register notice. And according to HUD, as of yesterday, that again is in process. When we look at what CBDG traditionally has been used for. We think of it in fairly, um, in, you know, normal terms. You know, community development, building, construction projects, housing is a huge portion of what uh, CBDG funding is for. Uh, in this case, what types of activities for COVID nineteen 
are state and locals able to look at when it comes to this particular CBDG CV money? Sure, that's a great question. And one of the things that everybody loves who loves CBG loves about it is that it does have a long list of eligible activities that are allowed under the program, and some of them are more specific than others. Um, but it already has room for grantees to really think outside the box in terms of their response to COVID um, and the other economic um, implications that are coming from this challenging time that we're in. So um, HUD's actually already put out a guide uh, to potential eligible activities. Uh, it's not meant to be all-encompassing, but some great examples. Um, again, that, that information is available on the various HUD websites. But um, just as an example, um, acquisition, uh, repairs or rehab or construction for any type of public facility or building that might be providing any type of testing, diagnosis, treatment, that type of thing would be eligible. Um, again, because of the lift on public services cap, uh, a lot of grantees are looking to provide or supplement existing um, or provide new services um, that we didn't know we needed before now. So new or quantifiably increased public services, um, that could include a wide range of things from job training for folks to move into new type of positions, meal deliveries like Meals on Wheels, supplies, testing, treatment services. That can even include emergency assistance for rent or mortgages or utilities. Uh, right now, the cap on that is three months. That's an important element in the prevention of eviction and foreclosure. And that comes under the public services line item in terms of eligibility. In terms of economic response, CDBG has always been a great uh, program to provide um, grants and loans to businesses. That can be for working capital. It can be for physical improvements, um, provided that you know, the, the grantee can document that they're preventing job loss or helping to create new jobs of some type. Um, and that would even imply to uh, micro enterprises, which are very small businesses. There's a lot of talk going on about what is considered small. And so CWG already has a provision by which grantees can do a separate program just for very small businesses. And that can include technical assistance as well to help them get through this difficult time. And of course, grantees can always do planning, uh, capacity building um, of their own partners and, and to roll out these new programs. That's always included as a possibility. Well, you look at um, grantees needing to wait until they execute, uh, execute grant agreements normally. Uh, is that changing under uh, the CV funds? It is, with one caveat. So um, HUD has published guidance on this already as well, anticipating this might be a problem. So they have said that for the CDBG CV funds, that's that $2 billion already allocated and potentially the $3 billion coming, um, they will be able to reimburse themselves essentially for costs already incurred on eligible projects. And of course, there's a lot in that, but essentially it does recognize that uh, yesterday, last week, two weeks ago, a month ago, they may have had to incur costs related to some of these services or what have you, um, and they'll be able to reimburse themselves appropriately as long as they have sufficient documentation as such. Now, again, that only applies to the CDG CV specific funds. Uh, unfortunately, it does not go retroactive to the federal fiscal year 2019 and 20 grants as the other provisions I mentioned before apply. Again, lots of guidance on that available as well. 
No, that makes sense. Um, with regards to, obviously, in this particular case, we're looking at requirements for this particular program because so many federal agencies are involved in providing some level and aspect of um, assistance in various forms. How is that playing out in terms of any new requirements that CBDG funding needs to be aware of and our state and local clients need to be thinking about as they're applying those dollars and other dollars? That's a great question as well. Um, and I think, thankfully, so far, the recognition in the CARES Act and, and what HUD is doing so far has been to, you know, to provide waivers and flexibilities as much as possible. But the CARES Act was enacted under the uh, auspices of the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act. All states have been designated as uh, with disaster declarations. Therefore, the Stafford Act, as we call it for short, does apply the duplication of benefits requirements in that act does apply to the CBGCV funds. And that's a complex topic that in fact, we're gonna hold um, have another podcast on and ICS already published some guidance around duplication of benefits for the CBGDR program. Um, but just simply put, um, what that means is that grantees will have an obligation to ensure that they're not duplicating any assistance that a person, uh, a business, uh, or a nonprofit, let's say, um, is already receiving from the federal government. One of the most common examples is some of the SBA assistance um, and also FEMA assistance, since they're also uh, partners in early on uh, disaster response and recovery. So there's a process by which those things can be checked and documented, and um, we always encourage grantees to make sure they thoroughly understand those requirements and have the systems and processes in place to, to carry out that DOB requirement. Finally, I'd ask, uh, where is the best place for our clients to go to in terms of, other than the ICF.com website, we certainly want them going there, but where else should they be looking uh, within the federal government for this particular information regard to COVID and the uh, housing and urban development? Sure. Um, HUD.gov is going to be one of your primary resources there. And in fact, if you go to HUD.gov, you'll see at the very top with a very bright red box, um, all their COVID-19 information. And um, it'll take you to a page that lists everything. Um, and then also a lot of the information that's specific to CWG in particular and some of the other programs that are like that, uh, that information and more details are often on the um, HUD Exchange. The, it's called HUDExchange.info. And again, you'll see uh, different places on the homepage directing you to those resources. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate it. Deb, I'd love to bring you in here at this point because there have been questions that have been raised, certainly given the fact that in some cases, the uh, OMB and the federal government is going to allow prior prior year grants from other other activities to be redirected towards this. But when we talk about CBDG DR funding allocated for disaster recovery, um, is any of that eligible for COVID-19 assistance at this point? Hi, Marco, thank you. Uh, no, unfortunately, the CDBG DR funds, uh, the CDBG that was given for the National Disaster Resilience and the CDBG fund that's coming out for mitigation all of these funds have been specifically allocated to address prior disasters and specific impacts in specific geographies. So the COVID-19 um, 
emergency is not something that would be eligible to be addressed with those funds. Is COVID-19 um, impacting any of the disaster and mitigation grants that have, have been already applied or, or, or rather are being uh, executed now from prior disasters? Has there been any flexibilities uh, made available under those? Yes, HUD provided their FAQs uh, for the COVID-19, and in those FAQs, they did allow um, these grants that are in motion. Most of these are going through an action plan process. The CDBG-MIT funds have been going through extensive action plan and public hearing uh, requirements. Um, there is the uh, 2019 CDBGDR funds that were just recently allocated, and um, Many of the same staff that manage um, these funds are now having to turn their attention to the COVID-19 emergency. So HUD has um, provided a 90-day extension on those um, action plan delivery dates. Well, in a lot of cases, we know the grants covers, uh, in, in, for most of the disaster-related grants that are out there, um, they're meant to cover abnormal costs. In other words, costs that are not normally covered by um, by other uh, programs or, quite frankly, the base capabilities of, of state and local governments to pay. Can these grants cover costs that are normally not allowable? Um, yes, um, they're going to, um, OMB's put out some guidance and it's also in the FAQs uh, that was issued by HUD. Um, that there's been a normal standard test for allowability and reasonableness and allocability under the two CFR 200 um, administrative requirements, federal administrative requirements. And um, they are allowing uh, some flexibility around this. Um, for example, normally if you had scheduled to go to a conference and you were using these grant funds, uh, to attend that conference and the conference and you don't go for some reason well then you cannot recoup those expenses but um, they are allowing that if you document um, the issue and and the reason that you could not you know for example um, attend a conference or a scheduled meeting or an on-site meeting with your clients that you can go ahead and um, re get reimbursed for those costs from these grant funds when it comes to what the CARES Act um, said with regards of changes that the CARES Act is making to the programs, um, how is that applying or is there any applicability to those changes to the CBDG disaster relief money, the NDR money, or the mitigation money? Um, it's going to apply to the CDBG MIT funds. Um, these grantees are going to be allowed to use the virtual public hearing option, uh, which was um, mentioned under the act. What about um, the impacts, uh, any other impacts that we should be thinking about when it comes to the CARES Act on some of these programs? Well, I want to go back to what Kelly said earlier, and I think that the duplication of benefits um, under the Stafford Act is going to be a new and challenging uh, territory for a lot of the uh, state and entitlement CDBG uh, recipients, um, as this is a very complex um, layering of funding and to make sure that uh, you don't duplicate benefits uh, from other sources. And as Kelly said, that could be from other federal agencies. It could be from state or local um, governments. It could be from uh, nonprofits. But, um, you know, it's a it's a complex um, 
procedure to go through this duplication of benefits. And as Kelly said, we're going to be ICF will be putting out some future um, guidance um, on those uh, duplicated benefits um, calculations. Well, thank you. Uh, appreciate that, Deb. Carolyn, um, one of the things that uh, is going to be very important for folks to look at beyond the CBDG program is how OMB is looking at the use of grant dollars and the rules that apply to those, uh, given that OMB, um, beyond just the legislative requirements or the regulatory requirements that the programs are developed under, has guidance and, and requirements that federal agencies are required to follow. And quite frankly, our state, state and local grantees are, uh, are required to follow when it comes to how they purchase, how they procure, how they manage these funds. Uh, and what kind of advice would you give to grantees, regardless of the programs that they're looking at, but in this particular case, obviously COVID-19 uh, related, that they should be thinking about with regards to procurement requirements uh, under federal grant that they need to be cognizant of to make sure that they maximize and protect the, the reimbursement programs that uh, are going to help fund them? Right. Thank you, Marco. Yep, I appreciate the um, opportunity to be a part of this important, informative podcast and um, talk to you all about this. Um, one thing I've seen, this is kind of un in these unprecedented times, is that the agencies are really going out of their way to remind grantees, contractors of flexibilities that are available um, in the regulations. Um, that there are there's a lot of there's a lot already there about urgent and compelling. And um, an agency is going out of their way to let us know that what we can use and what we can't, uh, how we how we can step out that direction. It's important though that um, that it, you know state and local agencies, you know, make sure that they have program managers that are informed as um, and as well as their procurement officers, you know, knowledgeable in these procurement practices. Um, they need to understand both their local procurement requirements as well as these fun these um, federal flowdowns and requirements. Um, in the regulations, um, they need to be following two CFR um, part 200.300. Um, I know that's a mouthful. Um, and then following their own procurement requirements. That's always the, it's always the difficulty to kind of understand which do I follow. And the realities is, you know, the, the best guideline there is whichever is most stringent, follow that. Um, and that's especially um, can be difficult when to kind of which do you do when there are um, multiple funding streams. So really understanding um, all of the funding streams, what are the procurement requirements, and then following your most stringent requirements. Um, as folks have been mentioning on the call today um, or on the podcast here today, um, the Stafford Act declaration um, does allow now for um, increases in a lot of the thresh acquisition thresholds for cost and price analysis. Um, they've in increased now the micro purchase threshold from, uh, from 10,000 up to 20,000. The simplified acquisition thresholds for um, analysis is gone from 250,000 all the way up to 750,000. And the simplified acquisition procedures for um, commercial item buys is all the way up to 13 million. Um, so that great, creates a great deal of flexibility and understanding in these regs. Um, in managing any of your, um, the, any acquisitions under these federal grants, the most important thing you can think about is keeping documentation. Having sufficient detail and history of why you selected suppliers, the rationale of the methodology of the procurement, 
what contract type, you know, fixed price or TNM, why you pick that and what's the overall basis of your price and that cost analysis is going to be critical to ensure reimbursement. Um, and then, you know, in thinking through continuing to manage these programs all the way through ensuring that invoices are paid in accordance with the contract terms. I know that sounds basic, but sometimes um, through these, you know, audits that come about after the fact, I, you know, the IGs will come in and review the contract documentation. Modify your contract um, to make sure as changes occur, that these contracts with your suppliers evidence those changes. Um, just proper documentation through through every step um, is going to be key to um, to make sure that there isn't going to be any you know refunds or withholdings by um, by by your funding agents um, funding agencies as you go forward later. Um, that's that's the that's the biggest thing is kind of what's the what's the old adage you know start out with your end in mind and your end in mind is to get reimbursed. Well, and talk about how state and locals can um, look at contracting. Obviously, there is a number of states, all states have their own procurement uh, vehicles or necessarily their own procurement activities um, that they can manage themselves. But there are federal uh, contracts that state and locals are allowed to purchase off of for supplies, for support, for assistance, et cetera. What are the kind of contracting vehicles that federal grantees, especially state and local governments, can look at to procure materials and services? That's a great question, Marco. Um, I think the the best um, the best vehicle really to be thinking about, and a lot of state and local governments don't realize is available to them, is the GSA schedules. With the declaration of the, of the um, public emergency, um, health emergency, that now opens up the GSA, all GSA schedules to um, available for state and local governments to access and buy, and buy using the using those um, using those contract rates. So um, and there you know often state and local governments use these um, vehicles for their IT services, but now with the public health emergency that they can move forward um, using the using the entire entire breadth of the GSA schedules for any kinds of services or products that they may need to buy. Um, so, you know, and these prices under the GSA schedule are pre-established. They can go search them online now so they can do research and determine how best, you know, what, what they need to buy and, and do some budgeting and analysis without even having to, you know, do the first contacts. Um, and then um, it, it, again, it will help them work through their cost reasonableness documentation that they need um, need to establish for their files and, and backup documentation. Um, the one thing I can uh, counsel, though, on this is they need to go through what's called the e-buy process as opposed to GSA Advantage. Um, e-buy gives them the flexibility to be able to add the grant provisions that they need to flow down um, from their funding source. So um, that's that that's going to be important to them to have those additional um, contract terms added because the GSA schedules, um, while they have standard terms and conditions, do not um, have the, what's necessary to flow down from the grant provisions that they that they need to. So do so do remember that. Go through the um, eBuy system, and um, and they're also going to be responsible if there's other documentation, you know, other 
other terms and conditions, they need to review them and make sure there's no conflict between what's on the um, GSA schedule and what they may have from their grants or from their state and local requirements. Um, but that flexibility is there. It's it and um, and I've seen you know states have done that through um, um, super storm Sandy and, and other and other times of disasters. It's a great vehicle to to use. Um, certainly, Carolyn, as, as state and local governments are looking at this, obviously normal procur procurement processes can be lengthy, uh, days, weeks, months uh, in length. Obviously, the opening up of GSA helps to shorten that, potentially shorten that timeline, shorten that schedule. Uh, right. Bottom line, though, uh, what's your, your, your base bottom line advice to these state and local governments? Uh, how should they make sure that they're doing this the right way? Um, boy, there's, there, you know, I, th I think as I said um, before, I think it's it's starting out with your end in mind and making sure you can step through um, each of your, the documentation that's the most important piece. Um, really going through each each of the requirements and um and keeping that um, backup documentation so that when when the when the audits occur and and you know and these igs will come back through each of the because because of this major disaster and all the funding that's coming about um there will be those 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 lookbacks and and having all of that documentation available so that there aren't questions about what you bought and why you bought um why you paid what you paid um is going to be the most important piece to keep to keep the um, reimbursements moving. Carolyn, thank you. Appreciate it. Excellent advice and certainly uh, almost worthy uh, procurement and OMB guidance is, is certainly a lengthy subject and uh, we can uh, at a future date take a look at perhaps in more in depth for, for those that are interested in those issues as well. But I want to thank you for providing that overview today. And I do want to thank both Kelly and Deb for also uh, helping us today with uh, CBDG uh, and specifically the COVID money and how it relates not only to the activities going on now, uh, but how it affects potentially uh, prior uh, awarded co uh, CBDG dollars from, uh, from prior grant agreements, uh, all of which is important for our state and local governments to understand as they think about applying those, those dollars. It's a great opportunity uh, to also make sure that folks are aware that we are planning uh, not just a podcast, but a webinar on duplication of benefits. It's a complicated subject that has many parts to it, especially with so many federal grant programs involved, as well as how it intersects with insurance and how it intersects with other funding sources to make sure that grantees at every level, both from a state and local perspective, um, individuals, businesses, et cetera, need to be thinking about in terms of not running into a duplication of benefits problem. Uh, that usually is a challenge in any disaster. It uh, can be an even bigger challenge given COVID-19 and how unique this particular emergency is. Thank you all for joining us. And remember that the ICF podcast series is available at www.icf.com under insights. Uh, every one of our podcasts are there, as well as additional information, thought pieces, articles, and links to um, specific information that's been developed about details on any of these topics and programs, and links to the federal agencies that are uh, most engaged with various aspects, FEMA, HUD, and others. 
We encourage you not only to check out those resources, but to give us some feedback on the podcast, uh, topics that you wish to see coming. Future topics are going to include, of course, duplication of benefits, uh, but we're also going to be looking at mitigation because we're going to enter into a phase in the months to come uh, on how we mitigate against future uh, COVID uh, activities, certain other pandemics. uh, And also we're going to be taking a good look at what is the call to action to get back to the new normal? How do we plan in advance uh, for coming out of the COVID-19 response, knowing that much of what we do today may change and how we do it in the future. And we'll be providing some insights from ICF and industry experts on what we should be thinking about as communities, as businesses, and as individuals when it comes to uh, creating that new normal moving forward. Again, thank you for joining us. And hopefully we'll hear you and uh, get a chance to share additional information with you on future podcasts. 